Sorry no, about that. No, it I, happens, man. I jumped a little bit. If stuff. anything, we, what we've been learning right now is just uh, technology is such a fun pain in the ass. <laughs> um, with, like with, with the in-person <laughs> ones, we had a... It was like a three-hour fiasco of cameras just overheating and then stopping and then going and like, oh, man, and then storage. Yeah. And you think you're prepared and you're like, oh, this will just be easy. I'll just have these cameras on and we'll just go and we'll start and we'll talk. And then you realize, no, 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 no. It's yeah. technical failures. This is the Other People Podcast with Paula Hathaway and Ray Ream. David, welcome to the Other People Podcast. Yeah. Appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming in. That, uh, thank let's you. Let's see here. David Lancaster, writer, journalist, researcher, historian, and director. Did what? we miss anything? Anything else? Uh, <clears throat> Father. Father. Definitely. Parent. There we go. How many kids do yeah. you have, David? Yeah. Uh, just one, a uh, uh, lovely daughter called Bonnie, seventeen-year-old oh, daughter. Very cool. Uh, but that's that's enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've got two. Two's two's more than enough. So yeah, let's say one's <laughs> one's one's pretty good. Oh man, well, very cool. I wanted to so uh, the the podcast. Uh, the reason why we're asking here is we we're basically building an anthology of people who are blazing their own trail and doing something different in life than just the normal nine to five. And so, uh, your documentary came up and I was seeing clips and it just so interested in one motorcycles just in general. So I've been, I've been on a bike since I was five and, uh, it's just a big part of, of life. Um, <clears throat> but also just the, you know, we're, we're going to dig in real quick, <laughs> dig in right away, but just like the career trajectory of like, what, what led you? Cause you started, um, uh, in writing, right. Uh, in, in college, uh, to become a journalist. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and obviously motorcycles are just so hard, are already built into your DNA that, uh, I'm curious, you know, young David Lancaster, what was the plan? <laughs> you know, you, you've got, you've got two things in your career uh -huh. base that are just the, that are outside the norm. And generally, you know, most people are, uh, mm. gonna, you know, have, have like a, I'm uh, sorry, just, you know, normal jobs. Everyone gets normal jobs right out of school and whatnot. And, uh, you went <laughs> straight into writing. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I've, I've had some normal jobs as a part-time thing when I was at university I worked as a courier. I worked on a building site. Uh, and when I left school, when I was, when I was finishing school, uh, I really wasn't doing very well. So I was on the cusp of, uh, I think I was going to join a warehouse as an assistant manager. And this just terrified me, <laughs> which is probably very snobbish, isn't it? When you're 16. <laughs> Uh, but I went to a school where uh, the people who failed 11 plus went. So the people who passed this key exam at the age of 11 went to the grammar school. Mm -hmm. uh, neither myself or my twin brother passed it. So disappointing to my father. My mother was just probably very kind and hid her disappointment. Uh, and the, the upside was the school was, was really good fun. It, it was like something out of the Beano comic or the Mad comic <laughs> maybe in America. Yeah. You know, a lot of kids who didn't really care 
about school, but would care about being in a band or would care about playing football or then skateboarding became a really big thing yeah. in the mid to late 70s. So even though that maybe held me back for a year or so, it was it was actually great. It was, it was, it always reminded me of, it's probably many years ago for many people, uh, the Phil Silvers show where he played this character called Bilko and he was on an army base and there was oh. always some scam that Phil Silvers yeah. character, Sergeant Bilko mm -hmm. was trying to pull. And they're on YouTube now and they're wonderful. <clears throat> And I look back at school as, as rather like that. It was like a an army base where <laughs> there was a modicum of discipline, but it actually didn't really hold for a lot of the time. Anyway, so then I went to college and did the O-levels. I did two at school. They only enter you into, well, they only entered me into one. I entered myself into the other one. Uh, and then I thought, I, I really want to go to university. I don't want to go into a job yet or... A conventional job again i'm sure it's really snobbish <clears throat> my father was a police officer so he he probably thought what what has this kid got in his mind you know yeah. why doesn't he just go and get a job like i did when i was 16. yeah i did philosophy at university and then became a motorcycle journalist and then after about three years realized i didn't want to just write about motorcycles as compelling as they are especially new motorcycles there's not there's not a great deal to say you know every year they get faster they get better they break better yeah i feel like abs so I went is like freelance <laughs> and then yeah <clears throat> that was uh that was my period this is the late 80s and that was coming in uh and then you know started working in magazines i did some car journalism uh i went from car journalism to a Channel 4 television program as a researcher, uh, which was really good. That was up in Glasgow in Scotland. I then joined Top Gear, which, you know, is a big show. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't that big then. It was done in, at a, in a place called Pebble Mill, which is in Birmingham in the middle of the UK. Uh, but that was great. <clears throat> and I was into doing some television, which I always wanted to do. And I was a researcher and then I became a director. Uh, then I launched a food magazine, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, which was a kind of left field choice and a left field magazine. I took the idea to a big publisher. Um, this was called Eat Soup, and I wanted to make sort of food journalism or, or food monthly magazine journalism as interesting as I found food. Yeah. Because most of the magazines, well, all of them at the time were really very straight. So... It would be something in, in North America, I guess, like Saveur or something like that. Mm. So we did this magazine for a year. It only lasted for a year, but it was it was great fun. You know, we uh, we followed James Bond's uh, drinking and driving through France, oh, not at the same amazing. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One yeah. of us drove and one of us drank. <laughs> you know, that classic try and keep up to what the alcohol intake is. Well, well, the reason uh, why his martinis were shaken were so they were watered down. So, I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so we did these these really good fun features. Uh, so the magazine closed. I, I then got a job on the Times and I was there for probably two and a half years on the Saturday sort of lifestyle supplement. And so I was 
food and drink editor on the Times, commissioning the wine columns, the restaurant reviews. Uh, and then I left the Times. This was at the beginning of the the internet boom, which was a really interesting time to be in the content business mm -hmm. because there was obviously money going into building websites, most of which wouldn't get past the first six months. But the whole business model I soon learned was you can build something and somebody will acquire what you've built in order to bolt it onto their operation. Yeah, that's kind of uh, the way, isn't it? So that unfolded quite, quite well. Uh, I then raised the money privately with a couple of colleagues to launch a, a trade magazine called Restaurant, which is still going, and it does the Restaurant Top 50 Awards every year. Uh, and then after... I sort of sold my minute shareholding in that. Uh, I was freelancing and doing some sort of directing as freelancer. I was a script editor at the BBC. And then I drifted into education and started a PhD, which I never managed to finish. We'll still call and you doctor. That's my we'll still call main... you doctor. Uh, no, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I felt told. I, I so wanted it to get an upgrade. Yeah. You know, Dr. Lancaster. <laughs> could, he, could, he, could he turn left rather than rather than right. <laughs> uh, so that's, you know, my, my main sort of day job now is is lecturing in journalism. Oh, very cool. But alongside this, I've I've made this film, Speed is Expensive. Yeah, this is, uh, thank you for sending it to yeah, I watched that film, film and uh, it's, uh, it's it's just really good. It's really exciting. I I love uh, I, I I work in uh, technology sensors and, and controls and engineering, and so uh, it's really mm -hmm. neat to see how things progress and to think of uh, this. You know, it was a twelve hundred cc bike like back then. It that's just a monster. <laughs> like it's just a beast. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was a thousand, a thousand, sorry, sorry. But it was still, yeah. it was still a beast. Yes. Yeah. That's so crazy. It's so, and, 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 and what, what brought you to uh, this, you know, the focus on, on Vincent motorcycles and, and, and really like, you know, going, <clears throat> you know, there's, a, there's a film here, obviously, you know, anybody would know that, <laughs> but it's, uh, um, you know, what, what, what fueled you to take that on? Uh, it's an, it's an undertaking. Uh, yes, it, it was partly my parents had both died and they were, my father particularly was very into Vincent's and had a Vincent all his life. And they traveled into Europe in the mid 1950s on, on their Vincent, which was, you know, quite something to do for for a young couple. They weren't wealthy or privileged. And they even went to, which I find amazing now, they went to Yugoslavia, which was then in the Eastern Bloc. Mm -hmm. It was run by a guy called Tito. But they took these, these long trips with their friends on their Vincents. And I thought, this is an amazing 10 years after the Second World War had ended. How, how must it have seemed going to these countries? But I had this I had this vision, which is a very, very pompous way to put it, but I had a scene in my head that if you were working in the fields in Italy or Yugoslavia, you know, because still really agricultural countries, and then four or five young couples on these 1,000cc beasts, yeah. as you say, go past, I thought 
that must have seemed like out of space had arrived. And <laughs> oh, yeah. The, so the four <clears throat> horsemen. That made me think. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you know, you, you, when you look back, you, you realize your, your parents were probably better looking and more cool than, than you were at that age anyway. Yeah, that's pretty badass. And I yeah. thought. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought, well, this, I, perhaps I've got all these slides, which is lovely, but why don't I try and find the remaining people who built the Vincent motorcycle, the people who worked uh, at the factory. And there was quite a, a sort of drift into history, which had probably started considerably earlier, but I'd come across it where, you know, it, it wasn't all kings and queens and presidents. There was as much wisdom on the, on the shop floor in the workers' canteen as there was in the director's restaurant. And that was partly what informed it. I teamed up with uh, my long-term colleague, Jerry. Jerry Jenkinson is a very technically proficient, was a lighting director for people like Howard Pinder. So we teamed up and we started filming as many people as we could find, you know, to be perfectly blunt, while we could talk to them because most of them by then were in their 80s. Yeah. And nearly all of them, because the film's been a long time coming, nearly all of them have passed away. So we... Wow. We did do what we set out to do at first, was to record these voices. And then it sort of every six months or maybe every year, uh, you know, it, it would sort of go up a gear. So we got the last interview with uh, John Surtees and he worked at the factory. He was the only person to win the Formula One car championship and the 500 motorcycle championship, which will you know never be equal again, yeah. I suspect. And Vincent's was his first job and he was really good. And not many people had asked him about that because, you know, when you've won the F1 championship for Ferrari and people, you know, the car world is bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the Vincent family, which is Vincent's daughter, his son-in-law and Vincent's grandson, who I'd known, I'd been badgering them about these films that I knew were in a shed. And some of them, it appears, it transpired well on 16 millimeter in color and vincent had recorded wow. his life <laughs> recorded his family recorded his sales trips to north america to south america to europe and once we got those restored and digitized it it went up another notch and i thought it's amazing we can make a film here yeah it doesn't just have to be motorbikes and talking heads yeah uh, mm -hmm. and then i guess the last piece of the jigsaw was during lockdown, uh, our American producer, James Salter, had reached out to another friend called Greg to see if Ewan McGregor might be interested in doing the narration. And obviously lockdown, I guess, was a good time to <laughs> make that overture. Yeah, to get a voiceover. <laughs> uh, so it, <clears throat> That's good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he just phoned up out of the blue. And I, I then discovered there was an email, which I hadn't seen. <laughs> uh yeah, David, it's you. And yeah, no, this sounds great. Yeah, send me the script. So, of course, I said, oh, yeah, script's fully ready. And yeah. Of course, it wasn't. Was <laughs> about four days pulling bits of ideas together. Yeah. But, you know, thankfully, he, he really liked the script because I think he, he could have very easily said, oh, something's come up, you know. Yeah. Uh, he... Disney or on the phone or. or... Yeah. Obi-Wan. But he went with it and yeah. we recorded it online uh, during lockdown. <laughs> That's great, and I and I mean he's such a voice for for motorcycles now too. I, I feel like uh, he and mm. uh, Charlie Borman 
are, are they're they're just right up there and on like pushing things and uh yeah you know and, and there seems like there's no like boundary if it's an electric bike or if it's an old bike it's like they're, they're just they're pushing that out there and, and showing people how fun it is and what you can actually do on a motorcycle and why it's so mm. different than a car it's true freedom i think <laughs> you know but uh yeah I, I you know that was i think that was part of the appeal because he, he really and charlie as well who i've got to know since you know they're not just posing around hollywood on bikes they're when they do incredible mileages for the shows for the long way series um but you know ewan is quite into old bikes as well so he obviously heard about vincent's but didn't know much more so that was really gratifying that he he really bought into the story and vincent's life which was privileged uh he grew up in argentina on this this massive farm his parents had he then went to Harrow, which is one of the top private schools. It's, it's like Eton. Mm -hmm. He went to Cambridge University, but, you know, obviously he was developing as a designer, but developing as a person. So he, you know, he could be quite arrogant. So he just left Cambridge. Well, in fact, the the, the lecturers or the, the master at the house where he was, King's College at the college, just wrote to Vincent's father and said he's, he's spending more time fiddling with motorcycles than he is at lectures. <laughs> so in some ways, he was actually sent down, is the sort of English phrase for this, which is basically, we don't want you anymore, you're not doing enough. <laughs> and Vincent's attitude in these wonderful audio recordings, which we unearthed, was everything's too old-fashioned. You know, this is, I'm, I'm going to learn, you know, why go to listen to people who've, you know, maybe made something 40 years before? So yeah. he, he did mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. And he was a young man and he was an impatient young man. And when his father realized that he wasn't going to stay at Cambridge, so his father put some money in and Vincent was making motorcycles. I think at the age of 19, he was the head of a motorcycle company. Quite amazing. Wow, that that's, is amazing. That is amazing. And that's kind of, uh, uh, I mean, obviously there's, there's some parallels for you too, I feel like, um, in that. And I think that's... Uh, something that I, our listeners are probably looking for. It's like it, if you really, really just focus on what you want to do, you know, and it's like, if you, um, I think what we, we just had a guest, um, Monty and she said, if you leap, the net will appear yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, it's, <laughs> it's such a great thing. Yeah. It was really like, uh, that's going to like stick with me. Um, but it's such such a great thing to have, um, you know, examples of people that just, you know, went, you know, nobody else is doing this, so I'm going to. And yeah. when you, you know, just keep, you know, keep one foot in front of the other and keep going, it, it can, it'll work out. You know, you just, it, it's, it's all these small steps. And if you're, um, impatient in the day and, and, and patient long-term, like you, you, you'll make steps and, 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 and achieve, and it doesn't have to be, you know, through school or through these regular careers or, you know, like we say, it's the, you know, the, the work retire die kind of thing. It's like you, you, you probably yeah. only have one chance at, <laughs> at life. Yeah. Here, and so. life is short, so make it happen. Just do it for sure. But let's, uh, the, yeah, let's digress a little bit though, a little bit more about you because you're not just, uh, it's just not writing and, uh, and, and film you, you, you're a musician as well, David. 
Let's talk about you this. A, you were in a band with uh, your brother when you were younger? Yes, we were in a band. I was in a band locally until about until the film took over my life. <laughs> uh which which was which was a lovely thing to do and a couple of very good musicians better than me. Uh, a very good singer and a very good sax player, and we we played just local kind of clubs, uh, which was really nice to do. It, it's it's a bit like filmmaking, I suppose, because you you've got to keep rehearsing. It, it doesn't always come easy. Um, there's a load of stuff, of course, that people don't see. You get on the stage, and people go, oh, "Well done, that was really good," and they don't see the wet night on Tuesday when mm. you're off to a rehearsal. And you really just want to slouch in front of the telly and watch something and have a glass of wine. Yep. Um, there's a friend of mine who is, it might be an interesting guest on your show. He's uh, a, a very old friend, but he's made a film. Uh, and he calls himself, and I understand it, an accidental documentarian. <laughs> and his film is about a, a musicologist called John Cohen, who's big on the folk scene in the States, but also... Uh, was a real pioneer at recording indigenous music. So he went to Peru oh, and wow. all these places and just got up and did it. And, you know, I've talked to Rob and Rob is a, an exec producer on my film and I'm the same on his. And John was you know, quite an inspiration for both of us in a way, because, you know, we'd be going up, you know, we're going up the hill in Peru and Rob would be going, oh, I've got to get insurance and, you know, is this and, you know, and what John used to say, because John was with him filming, he'd say, why let the insurance companies tell you what's going to go in your film? Just go and do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you fall over, pick yourself up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he said, but the mountain, people who climb mountains don't get insurance. And we're going to climb a mountain with a camera and find some people. They went and found the same people that John had filmed in the early 60s. Wow. Uh, and I thought that was really good. I mean, you you have to temper that with... You do need release forms, and you do need insurance. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> there's there's a certain there's a certain spirit which you should retain as a filmmaker. That it, you know, turn up and do it, and then I think there's a phrase: um, asking for f forgiveness is is much easier than asking for permission. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's something in that. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. Very much. Yeah. Speaking of asking for forgiveness, what is this club? Oh, tell us about the Mean Fuckers Club. <laughs> what What is that about? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that's a London... That's... It's, and it's where kind do we get of tongue-in-cheek, you know. Um, <laughs> ah, very sought after. The, <laughs> the club was actually started by my friend Rob Carr, who I'm just talking about, made the film about John Cohen. And it was just a, really a bunch of kind of like-minded people who rode bikes in the late 80s um, and would just meet at various pubs around London. London was, you know, like big cities. It was a, it was freer then. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody says this about, you know, their life 20 years ago, but it, it was a, it was a more liberal place, place to ride a motorcycle. It's quite restricted now. So, you know, we'd go to a pub in Camden and then we'd sort of all drive to Soho and have late night coffee. And it was... It was a bit, I guess the inspiration was that classic sort of motorcycle look, but that was the inspiration behind, you know, The Clash. So it was as mm -hmm. much to do with everybody being a fan of The Clash as it was 
riding a Triumph or a Moto Guzzi or a Ducati. As, um, was it like Quadrophenia where you guys going, going after the it's, scooters? It's, <laughs> it's still going. Not really. No, no. <laughs> it was. It, it it was more. It was a little bit standoffish. I mean, it was a, a bit. You know, we we didn't really like the garish colours of modern motorcycles. Mm-hmm. So there was a sense in which. Paul Simonon says in my film that uh, all motorcycles should be black and <laughs> there's maybe something of that spirit yeah. in, in the mean fuckers. Uh, but it's still going and, and it's great. It's a club with no rules, almost no rules, um, which is, if you can, if that can sustain, that's the way to do it because we've all come across these yeah. clubs where they get so top heavy and then people fall out and then there's an argument and a committee splits and then <laughs> and you think we've all lost what we joined the club to do, which was to ride motorcycles and stand around and talk rubbish about motorcycles. <laughs> That's right. Which you know, a lot of clubs kind of lose sight of, I think. Yeah, yeah it's it, it, it's amazing. Uh I I uh growing up um a friend, uh, a fellow that I played music with, his father had a, uh, a diesel truck shop, and uh, and that's where we would hang mm-hmm. out. Uh, we ended up actually building a recording studio out of it too. Actually, it was it was really fun. But uh, he and all his friends were you know big Harley guys, and so we would come in and mm-hmm. and hang out, and we're just little little teenagers, and you know everyone's you know, chain smoking cigarettes and drinking beer during the day, working on diesel engines, and they've got all their bikes out there and uh i just remember uh talking to them and, and i'm going yeah i'm gonna get a honda and uh <laughs> <laughs> and, and the looks on their faces I actually uh paula made me rip off a honda yeah. hat i had on a minute ago yeah I um like, she's like no wrong no read the room right read the room but uh i, just, I have a pension for japanese motorcycles <clears throat> well I, I i've had several and you know, I find them quite fascinating because Honda is, you know, they've really, well, Honda's the only one of the big four who began making motorcycles. So Kawasaki began making machine tools, Yamaha keyboards, mm-hmm. Suzuki wiring looms and looms for knitting of all things. And I've always had a soft spot for Honda because they've they've kept the faith. They've entered Formula One. Uh the bikes, people say they're boring, but I, I don't think they're boring. I just think they're they're really well engineered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I still, if I if I see one, I still look at it quite closely. Even though I've had a Yamaha and a Suzuki, there's there's something about. And also, it was a bit like Vincent. It was headed up. Shiroko Honda was this kind of emperor entrepreneur, the same as Vincent, and oh. his imprint could be seen on the motorcycles. It, it wasn't a design team as such. It was him with a design team, perhaps following his brief. Uh, and I think it's a great company for that. Yeah, there's there's some really good history there too when you think about, uh, like I think the factory burned down mm. like twice or something like Jeez. that and they just rebuilt and kept going. Yeah, It's amazing. Wow. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah. On, on another note, you, you talked about skateboarding. Are you big on skateboarding too? I was, yeah, I was, I was obsessed with it when I was, you know, 12, 13 or 14 uh, and would go up to, I, I grew up in sort of West London in the suburbs, but that would be the pilgrimage to go up to the South Bank, which is still a really big skate area, uh, 
place called Meanwhile Gardens, Gardens, which is in Notting Hill, which is still there. Oh wow! Uh, and I just I loved it. I I was reasonably okay at it. Um, I entered a few competitions and we we sort of did okay. It was it was a California thing for a, a kid growing up in yeah Hayes and Uxbridge in West London. You'd go and buy a skateboard magazine. And you just think, look at these guys. They're they're surfing, and they've they've got these empty swimming pools. How many can there be? <laughs> there, there just seem yeah. to be loads. But of course, there were in California, weren't there? Yeah, yeah. there were. Oh, um, there's. I mean, there and are. It, it opened my eyes. Yeah, <clears throat> I probably wouldn't trust myself on one now, but <laughs> it it really opened my eyes to music as well. I, you know, my mother was into the Beatles and so on. But you'd read an interview with Tony Alva or somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they'd talk about Jimi Hendrix. I'd never heard of him. So I just went and bought a Hendrix album on the strength of reading an interview, probably, I think, with Tony Alva. And, of course, you put it on and you go, oh, my goodness, yeah, this is beyond the Beatles. This is something different Mm -hmm. and really good. I think I got into the Velvet Underground and the Doors, probably just excavating that late 60s, 70s surf culture sort of scene. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very much where we are, actually. Yeah, um, that's pretty much where it all started. Yeah. Is where we live, so it's it's okay. pretty cool, and it's definitely uh, yeah intermeshed. Yeah, yeah into... I think up until a couple of years ago, uh, Tony actually still had a skate shop down down in Oceanside on the coast. Um, but yeah, it's very okay. we're very much entrenched in it. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty cool to be around it, but it's rad yeah, to see great. it, you know where you live too. And it was big there as well. So that's, that's awesome. Mm. Oh, for sure. Let's talk. Yeah. It was, um, <clears throat> go on. Oh, I want to, I, I, I want to dig into top gear a little bit though. Your time on top gear. Uh, what was oh, that? Right. That's gotta be fun. Right. Was it still, I, I imagine maybe it was even a little bit more, uh, um, rebellious in, in the early stages. <laughs> uh, uh, no, it wasn't. It was, yeah. I mean, Jeremy Clarkson wanted it to be and would, would do his best for it to be. But it was produced, as I say, in the Midlands in Birmingham. Uh, it's a sort of classic BBC outpost. You know, they used to have production centres in Bristol. They still do. But So it, was, it wasn't the show that probably you know, um, mm. but it was great fun. And... So I got to know Jeremy. I got to know Andy Willman, who is the producer of Latterly Top Gear, but now the Grand Tour. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still in touch with Andy. And you could see the beginnings of, I mean, this was years before it relaunched, but you could see the beginnings of, you know, could we do something a bit more fun than which hatchback is best if you play golf? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm characterizing them. Yeah, yeah. And then the BBC basically announced that it wasn't quite a closure but they said we're pausing top gear and of course in the media swirl you know top gear can so i i wrote a piece for for a paper about it and and then a while later uh jeremy clarkson and andy wilman thought that there's more to it they took it to the london arm of the bbc uh to a guy called gary hunter who I later worked with, and they basically re-energized it and reimagined it. So that's probably the one you know mm. with the studio audience, mm. uh, you know, with James and Jeremy, and it was 
pretty different, but still Top Gear. The music was the same. Uh, and I, I'm a big fan of the Grand Tour, actually. I, I yeah. think... I think they're like the Three Stooges or, or the Marx Brothers of motoring. It is hilarious. And you, you don't find out the petrol consumption of the cars, but it's really funny. Of course, some of it's staged. Mm -hmm. I, I just think it's really good entertainment. And I, I have to say, I admire them for gentlemen of a, gentlemen of a certain age, and that's me and that's them, mm -hmm. is to keep a quite punishing uh, schedule of filming overseas in pretty difficult environments oh you yeah. know i really admire them um to keep going yeah they're, they're all sucking enough to retire. they're they're you know in the mud and uh breaking down it's yeah it's it's yeah. hilarious it's hard, it's hard not to have a gut laugh at all like <laughs> in every episode uh, yeah but uh, and the one that's just been out i think it's a scandy tale uh, James had quite a bad crash, so he cracked his ribs and hurt his arm quite badly. And he sort of was in hospital, and then and then he rejoined them. And I thought, good, good on you, because <laughs> if you've done anything to your ribs, it can be the most painful okay. thing yeah. and take the longest to heal. And yeah, I, I thought, yeah, good on you. And they're, they're all kind of late 50s, early 60s. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. That's great. Let's see. Do you have... Mm. Um, uh, any advice for filmmakers that might be, you know, wanting to, to attack a big project like this, uh, like, uh, speed is expensive. Um, yeah. Yeah. Please. Any, any advice for people? Cause this is, I, I'm sure we've got listeners out there that, you know, aspire to, to make a, a mm. film or a documentary and, uh, be interesting just to know because you i mean you you're interviewing people all across the globe that you had to like really really work to organize all this it took like six or seven years to make that film yeah that's a long that's, time i know i, I <laughs> sort of i well <clears throat> i didn't mind that uh because as i said earlier it it gradually built in terms of i hope quality but i think sort of depth of research and depth of archive um you know you, my advice is it's a real balance isn't it you, you've got to keep going um you've got to be you know confident in your you know it's not the right word but in your vision and you've got to bring people along and you've got to pull in favors it, it's 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 a really interesting job if you're so we raised the money privately from some really helpful Vincent owners so that obviously helps if you've got a constituency of, let's say, fans or um, owners. It could be guitar owners. It could be owners of vintage surfboards. Mm -hmm. And that certainly gets you going. And uh, my friend Rob, he raised his money through Kickstarter, I think, which brings its own challenges. I imagine. Um, but also, you know, you can go to production companies as long as you you've got a good idea and you, you, you present it well, you know, ideas are, are the lifeblood of journalism, documentary making, you know, just looking at something afresh or looking at it differently, looking at something that's not been examined for 20 years. There's a lot of people in TV who, uh, you know, can, can make a program. Maybe they can't come up with the ideas all the time. So that's, that's, I think the key thing is, have you got a, have you got a take on something? So I, I've been discussing 
um, a lot of ideas with my friend Rob Carr. And we've got about 14 or 15, and you know, obviously some are better than others, but we've, we've sort of gone through them and, and sort of, okay, would this appeal? And then the other skill I think is being able to do that short kind of elevator pitch and mm -hmm. don't, don't bore people because you yeah. get so into the project. You mm -hmm. go, oh, yeah, did, did you know and Vincent left and it was amazing and by the end of his life and, and people have turned off. So you, you've got to develop this sort of either verbal or written presentation because people are so time short. It's just like, this is, this is what it's called. This is the story. This is how we'll tell it. And, and then and do you leave think, it with them. Do you think you can do that without a history of, um, you know, something to show for, like, this is what I've done before. You know, uh, I think that, that I'd be curious, uh, do you think that, you know, approaching a studio with just a really good idea, obviously it needs to be well formatted, but if you don't have, um, oh, I also worked on, on this other project and this other project and this other project. Um, mm. do you think that it's, uh, how feasible for somebody young? I mean, well, you need to it, build up a, <clears throat> a repertoire, a repertoire. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah. I I think um I think you can do it. I mean, obviously you've the, there is this tradition in documentary making that you 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 go out and do it. Um you can certainly get cameras cheap enough and editing is not the expensive uh process that it used to be. Mm -hmm. So you can put together a sizzle of of an idea. Um <clears throat> I mean, when I when I took this magazine idea in in the mid '90s to IPC, I hadn't edited a magazine at all. But they saw this emerging market for magazines like Loaded, which was a men's magazine which they published. And my magazine idea it wasn't necessarily geared towards men. It it slightly got got moved in that direction. But it's partly luck, isn't it? You know, so you go somewhere and something's been a success, and if you can. If you can put forward something that is in the same area, maybe even the, the publishers have got contacts with the same advertisers, you know, you don't know. But that was just a one-page idea. And and then it, it sort of grew and we researched it and we did dummies and so on. Uh, and I think with Speedy's Expensive, I you know, the longest item I directed was probably six minutes on Top Gear. So it was a leap of faith for a lot of people to go, you know, can you can you tell a story over 80 minutes? Because it's right. it's a long time if if it's if it starts to flag. And yeah. that's that's always been one of my ambitions. I just I really didn't want anybody in the cinema to be looking at their watches. I just wanted <laughs> to, you know, keep it tight, keep the story going. Um, I think people do take chances. I, I think there is a there, there is if you find the right opportunity, there, there is a willingness to say, okay, let's, let's run with this. And then obviously the, the whole social media thing where you can build up a profile, you can build up some interest, you can possibly secure some finance yeah. through Kickstarter or something. Well, clearly it did well at the Barnes film festival. Uh, it was sold out and it was a standing ovation and you won the uh, mm. festival's uh, award, the, the, the audience, audience award. award. So you, yeah. you did pretty good, I yeah. <laughs> I would say. 
Oh, I watched it. it Thank it, you. <clears throat> I, I watched it again last night, and uh, it just yeah, it okay. it doesn't yeah, it, it it doesn't drag. It like no, it just keeps you going, and then you're like, oh, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> like okay, all right. Like it this was is, very cool. The whole I, I have to. Uh, <clears throat> there was two key people towards the end who who really helped us get to that was uh, Russell Ike and Liz Deegan, who were editors. And Russell, again, quite lucky, a Vincent owner. So Jerry, my co-producer, just met him at a at a lunchtime kind of drink Vincent meeting and was introduced. And Jerry said, you know, what do you do? He said, I'm a film editor. And we, we'd been using one editor and it hadn't really worked out. So Russell and Liz, his sort of right-hand woman, the, the script didn't really change. The shape of the film didn't change much. But I was so struck editing with them how how many uh, just quite subtle tactics they could use to build up the jeopardy. I mean, obviously the music helps and so on, but you know, just moving <clears throat> one part of one scene ten seconds earlier, and you you would transform that section, mm-hmm. uh, and that was brilliant. And they were just really good to work with. I mean, they're both vastly experienced. So again, it was it was a bit of luck, but as I say, you, you've got to get out there. If Jerry hadn't gone to this lunchtime meeting, um, he might not have met Russell and, you know, so on and so forth. Excellent. Now, where can we expect to, to watch this when, when it does come out? It's going to be in Toronto next week at the Toronto Motorcycle Film Festival. Awesome. So that's showing on Friday, I think, October the 7th. Um, I'm waiting to hear on a, a few other American festivals because, as I'm sure you know, you, you kind of enter them quite early on and then you've just got to wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then this week we're talking to some sales agents who work internationally uh, and that's progressing quite well because that's the final sort of stage of it. You know, it's it's very nice to have a film and, you know, I was very touched. It was did well. Um you've got to keep going and enter the the commercial end of it, you know, so that I can pay the people who put the money in, pay my investors back. So I'm hoping these people we're chatting to at the moment are are really well established and have got a great slate of documentaries. As soon as I know where it's going to appear, I will, I will let you know. Oh, please. Yeah, no, definitely. I'll tell everyone. Yeah, Yeah. I will. My dad and brother have always had motorcycles, so I know they would absolutely love to watch it. So, yeah. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, before we let you go, uh, let's uh, mm-hmm. just just for everyone else. Do you have any Do you have any routines? Anything that you must always have going on? Uh, cup of coffee. Coffee in the um, morning. <laughs> what's your meditation? <laughs> meditation. Yeah. Um, well, I probably meditate over a coffee. I, that's the kind of running joke in the house. Is don't ask him anything for the first 20 minutes of the day. Right. Um, <clears throat> I, I mean, I must admit, motorcycling is still really good for clearing the mind mm-hmm. because you because you concentrate on the road and, and the road surface and on the engine. It, it You're quite focused and that, that releases some part of your brain is quite unedited. So, you know, I think any activity like that, I'm sure people who play golf feel it. You, you, you're into something so much, the other there is a part of your brain that just goes along. 
Um, I mean, I, I guess it would just be I'm, you know, I, I do I do like telling stories, and I I like uh, the research and find I find fascinating. Uh, so the project I'm working on at the moment is to do with food and France. Well, I've started on and uh, a, a particular writer, and you know it's been really interesting. I'm working with a, a friend of mine called Andrew, Andrew Nahum, and we're we're sort of deep in the research, which I I find a really interesting stage. And then you've got, which again is is the editing stage, is to bring this down to one page so you can start sending it to people and. You know, this is what we're thinking of doing and begin to raise a bit of money, just development money, to just film for a couple of days. Uh, I don't know. I, <clears throat> I I feel I should stop thinking about the next project, but, <laughs> no. you know, it's it's fun to do, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, oh, that's and, it. Of course. Yeah. I, I kind of want to do three films. I don't know why I've got three in my head. It's it's. I just want to get three good documentaries under my belt and then maybe try something else Very cool. I think that's great and I can't wait to watch them all yeah thank you so much David uh, <laughs> cheers to you we're choosing you with coffee because yeah, it's yeah, still coffee. early in the morning that's right <laughs> yeah yeah cheers. No, I'm still cheers. on coffee oh, so great. that's good <clears throat> thank you it's absolutely lovely to talk yeah, to you yeah definitely thank you so uh, much for we'll, the opportunity we'll keep in touch uh, I, you know next yeah. project I want to talk about food we love talking about yeah, food yeah we love food <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. happy to do that and uh, if you find yourself out here please 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 come in and we'll interview you in person I, yeah hopefully we're going to have some kind of screening in LA so oh, I'll, oh, very I'll let you know yeah please 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 if we can get on bikes or something and cruise around I'm, uh, <laughs> I will find my way up there yeah alright very good thank, thank you. you have a great so evening much. have Cheers a good one and your family okay both All right. bye <clears throat> bye take care take care everybody bye.